This morning, in our passage in Acts chapter 13, names are going to play a pretty important role. It's something that I didn't see the first like 20 times that I read through the passage, but it started clicking. And even this morning when I woke up and read through it again, it was like, wow, names are really a big deal in this passage. Most of us in this room, um, hopefully, know like what the meaning is attached to our name, and I'm not going to make you share that with each other, but afterwards, if you want to share the meaning of your name, find somebody and say, hey, my name is this, and it means this, and then we can all laugh about that. For me, the name Nicholas means conqueror of the people, which I always thought was great, but my last name, Dimmick, has possibly two meanings. The first meaning is pigsty. Um, I'm going to go with the second meaning, fort fortification. I'm going to go with that instead. So, but our name from the uh, western part of England uh, probably means fort, maybe means pigsty. We'll find out someday. It has been quite a while since we've been in the book of Acts. We did 18 Sundays in the book of Ephesians. I hope that it was a blessing to you. I love the book of Ephesians, and had never preached through it like that. And so it was a real blessing to me to spend time each week understanding that really important letter. One of the first things that I did with the elders team after coming here was we read through the book of Ephesians. We did it again a few years after that. I just think it's such an important, uh, real grounding book for us. So I'm glad that we could spend that time, but I am excited to be back in Acts. I love the book of Acts, too. Our theme for the book of Acts is the idea of being called out and sent out. Over and over in the book of Acts, we see God selecting, calling people out of the crowd, uniting them together as a church, and then sending them back out on mission. And that becomes very obvious today in Acts chapter 13. Since it's been a long time since we were in Acts, and maybe you didn't read up on the first 12 chapters to get back in line, I want to just give you a quick summary. So, after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, the Jewish people celebrated the Feast of Pentecost, which they had done for hundreds of years, but on that particular Pentecost, God was up to something new. And he sent the Holy Spirit to come dwell inside the believers of the new Christian church. Peter, now full of the Spirit, stood in front of the crowd in Jerusalem and he preached his first sermon. No formal ministry training, probably just an elementary level education, living as a fisherman most of his life. He stands up and preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people give their lives to Christ. Just an amazing work of God. The church grows fast into Jerusalem to, in Jerusalem to many thousands of people, and they, they share everything with each other. They have everything in common, and no one has any need. Leaders are raised up. We've got the apostles. We get elders and pastors being raised up in the church of Jerusalem. They boldly lead. The church grows fast, even though they face resistance from the government. Then deacons servant leaders are selected to care for the physical needs of the growing church. Stephen is one of those, and he is put on trial, but boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and is executed for it, becoming the first martyr of the Christian church. The church then scatters because of an increased persecution kicked off with the martyrdom of Stephen. 
But they don't just go into hiding. Philip becomes a great evangelist. He shares the gospel with a Samaritan, a bunch of Samaritans who are the half-breeds, the hated ones, and yet he took the good news to them. He even took the good news to an Ethiopian on his way back to Africa. Saul is introduced to us, and he becomes the chief persecutor of the Christian church. He is a very zealous Jew who wants to crush the church. Saul, though, is confronted directly by Jesus, the resurrected Lord, as Saul is making his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. Saul does a 180 in his life, completely turns around, repents of his sinful life, puts his trust in Christ alone for salvation, and is completely transformed. He will become known as Paul and become an amazing missionary throughout the Roman Empire. Peter is sent to bring the gospel to a group of Gentiles, non-Jewish people living on the coast in the Mediterranean. This surprising moment in church history opens the door for the church to the non-Jewish people. It does so in a very public and official and controversial way. The church in Jerusalem continues to suffer more great persecution. Churches, though, are planted in other places, and they send help, food, money, assistance to the church in Jerusalem to help them in this time of great need. Many Christians ran for their lives, scattering all over the region and eventually all over the Mediterranean. Some of those Christians made their way to the city of Antioch in Syria. They planted a strong, growing church there. And the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas there to encourage and lead them. Barnabas is going to play a key role today. James, the brother of John, is murdered then by King Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled over the area when Jesus was born. Peter was arrested by Herod Agrippa in Jerusalem But God miraculously freed him from jail, and then God struck Herod Agrippa dead in a public display of judgment. That is what happened so far in Acts. Now we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, and if you're looking at a pew Bible, you can look on page 921 as we get ready here. At this point, the focus of Acts shifts dramatically. Up until now, it's been focused in on Jerusalem, on the original apostles, people like Peter and James. They are the stars of the human part of the show. We've met this guy, Saul, who will become known as Paul, and we've marveled at his conversion, but now he's going to take center stage. And for the rest of the book of Acts, it's mostly telling the story of Paul and his adventures. He's going to travel all around the Mediterranean region, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of churches in his lifetime. He will be the most effective outside of the Jewish community, and so the church will rapidly grow and diversify. What was once a small group of Jewish people following Jesus, whom they claim to be the Jewish Messiah, will explode into thousands upon thousands of people, different ethnicities, languages, social statuses, and locations. The church was very homogenous. It was very similar. Now it's going to become very heterogeneous, very 
diverse. So, starting with our passage today, the Christian church will start an incredible advance that is still playing out today. Sometimes when we look at America and the Western world, we think, what is happening? Is Christianity failing? Christianity is exploding in parts of the world that are very different than us. The kingdom of God continues to advance even today. Let's see how that mission got started as we look at Saul going off on his first mission. We're going to put a map up here so we know what we're talking about. We're going to start today in Antioch in Syria. A little later in Acts, we're going to meet a different town named Antioch in a slightly different location. This was a large, very important city. It featured a dynamic Christian church that helped to train Saul to get him ready for the ministry that he was about to do. They would assemble a team, and they're going to send him off on mission. In addition to Saul, there would be Barnabas on the team, the guy who discipled and trained Saul right after his conversion. So Acts 13, 1 through 12, this is page 921 in your pew Bible. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So We've got a series of maps so we know where these people are coming from. We're told that there are prophets in the church at Antioch. These prophets are believers in Christ who have been given a special spiritual gift to hear directly from God and to communicate that message to the people. This is rare. It is special. God used the prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament to communicate to his people. Sometimes he would be predicting things in the future. Most often, he was simply teaching, instructing, and even pronouncing judgment on the people through his prophets. In this case, God has chosen to reveal something very specific and special to these prophets. Notice, Barnabas and Saul are named as prophets. We also have this other guy named Simeon, who's called Niger. It probably means that he's coming from the region of Niger, which is today just north of Nigeria, He was African, sub-Saharan African. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene, which is on the northern coast. We would say it's in Libya today, so he's also African. Then we have this guy named Manaean, who's simply referred to as a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. We should ask, well, who's that? Well, Herod the Tetrarch was a ruler over the northern part, the Galilee part of Israel, but they're not in Israel. They're in Syria. They're in Antioch. Why mention Herod the Tetrarch? Well, Herod the Tetrarch was famous, we should say infamous. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great, who was a really bad dude, who was the guy over Israel when Jesus was born and made sure that all the boys in Bethlehem were killed. That's, that's Herod the Great, or Herod the Not-So-Great, we might want to call him. It's not Herod the Great, it's not Herod Agrippa, who's the guy who killed James back in chapter 12 of Acts, who's also a bad dude. No, Herod the Tetrarch also known as Herod Antipas, was a bad dude too. He had John the Baptist beheaded during the ministry of Jesus. And he was also the Herod who colluded with Pontius Pilate for the crucifixion of Jesus. So we've just been told that in this church in Antioch, there's this group of prophets, Barnabas, Saul, three Africans, and a guy who's a childhood buddy, to one of the men responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. What a strange mix of people. 
And yet God's going to specifically set these people aside, communicate through them in order to send out this team. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this group of prophets are worshiping together. They're fasting, which means they're going, out with, going without food, maybe without sleep for a while, in order to focus specifically on worship and prayer. All of their energy, all of their time into worship and prayer. And it's in this humbled state, they're unified together, they're humble, the Spirit speaks to them and says, get Saul and Barnabas, set them apart for the mission that I have for them. What do the prophets do? They continue to worship and pray and fast. Then they lay their hands on Saul and Barnabas, And they send them off. As they're sent off on mission, my mind uh, goes to that classic movie, The Blues Brothers, with Jake and Elwood, where they repeatedly say, we're on a mission from God. Saul and Barnabas, though, are on a true mission from God. And they're commissioned in what became a traditional way of commissioning people in the church. The church gathered around them, laid their hands on them, actually physically placing their hands on them, shoulders, back, head, praying for them to send them off. Church has done this for 2,000 years, when pastors are ordained in the ministry, when missionaries are sent off on the field, when somebody is stepping into a new leadership role or taking on a new challenge, it is common for the church to gather around, lay their hands on them, to send them off, to commission them in their new work. One of the beauties of that is that it's physical, it's, it's real, you can feel it. And if you're the person being prayed for, you feel the weight of the hands. I confess that sometimes when I've been praying for people who are stepping up into serious, you know, risky leadership roles, I won't just put my hand on them, I'll lean on them, put a little extra weight on them, because I want them to feel like I have felt the weight of the ministry challenge that they're taking on. Paul is about to take on a great weight that will burden him for the rest of his life. And he feels that weight partially through the hands of these people who love him and are sending him off on mission. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So three things in this particular section that I want to make sure we understand. First, even though the church in Antioch has picked, prayed for, and sent out Saul and Barnabas, ultimately it is God who is sending them. We're told that in these verses. That is the Holy Spirit who is sending them out. This is not a man-made plan or endeavor. This is God at work in the church in Antioch to send proclaimers of the gospel out into the rest of the world. Secondly, notice that as they traveled, they went to the Jewish synagogues first. These are the buildings like we would have as a church today. It's the community of Jewish people who come together in there. It's where their spiritual life took place. And at least early in the Christian church, the missionary plan was... 
Go to the synagogues first. Proclaim Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah. Come to save the world. Saul's plan would change shortly to focus less on the Jewish synagogue and the Jewish people and more just on anybody who's willing to listen. Anyone who has been called by God and prepared by God to hear the message. Thirdly, we have this guy named John mentioned. It says John was with them to assist them. This could be a little confusing. This is not John, the brother of James, sons of Zebedee, called the Boanerges, sons of thunder by Jesus himself. He's not John the Baptist. So who is he? He's actually the guy that we know of as Mark. His name was John Mark. And in this point, he's simply going by John. Later, when he writes the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, he's going by Mark. But it's the same guy. At this point, he's probably a young guy. He's probably along helping the older guys with the physical challenge of the travels. Maybe he had to carry the heavy pack. I don't know what it is, but he's along helping them, assisting them. Where'd they go? They left Antioch. They sailed just a short distance over to Seleucia. I'm sorry, from Seleucia to Cyprus, landing at Salamis on the east coast, and they slowly make their way on foot across the island, stopping at any synagogues as they go. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Okay, we've got two new characters. We've got this guy named Bar-Jesus. He's also called Elamas. Elamas is the Arabic form of his name, and it means wise men. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. We think, wait a minute, son of Jesus. Well, Jesus was a very common name at that time. This guy is not claiming to be the son of our Savior. He's actually the enemy of our Savior in this story. No, it's simply that his dad is named Jesus. Bar means son of. He is the son of his dad named Jesus. We got another bar in the story, Barnabas, who we are told is the son of encouragement. I don't know if his dad was really named encouragement or if he got this name and the meaning of it on purpose. Barnabas is son of encouragement. We're told that Bar-Jesus is a magician, he's Jewish, and he's a false prophet, which I think is a pretty interesting combination. He's the opposite of the prophets that we saw earlier in the story. They were real prophets, being spoken to by the Spirit of God, speaking the words of God to the people. Bar-Jesus is a false prophet leading people away from God, away from the truth. We're not meant to think that he's just a stage musician or magician or an illusionist doing tricky things to impress people. We are meant to understand that he is a performer of the dark arts. He's seeking knowledge and power and seeking to use those spiritual dark forces for his good. We also meet this guy named Sergius Paulus. 
He's the ruler of the island. He's the top dog for the Roman government on the island. We're told that he's a man of intelligence who was eager to hear from Barnabas and Saul. This is odd. So for any, any point in the New Testament, for somebody to just voluntarily speak well of a Roman soldier in charge is odd. The culture at that time, most people just hated the Romans who were occupying them and were making life difficult for them. We're told here by Luke that he was an intelligent man, eager to hear from Barnabas and Saul. God was at work in Sergius. God was doing what he does when he saves anyone. He works in their hearts before they even know what's going on, before they know what questions to ask, before they know that they need a Savior and where to look for a Savior. Sergius is being worked on by God so that when the messengers show up, even though he's got a messenger of Satan whispering in his ear, Sergius is eager to hear from Saul and Barnabas. There's nothing impressive about Saul and Barnabas. Sergius sitting on, on maybe not a throne, but sitting behind his, his big fancy Roman table with all of his armor and his guys attending him, he would look at dusty, dirty, traveled Saul and Barnabas and John Mark with him, and he would think, these guys do not look impressive. But there's something about them, it's the Spirit of God working in them, that Sergius said, I want to hear what these men have to say. He was being drawn to God. God was drawing him to himself. Well, Bar-Jesus can't let this happen. He must oppose this because he's, he's going to lose his standing in the government. He has been a trusted, though he shouldn't be, advisor to the proconsul. He has amazed him with his magic and his influence. And now these guys show up out of nowhere. And they threaten that. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. I'm sorry, did I skip the verse? No, I got it. Back in 8. Okay, that's the right spot. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at Bar-Jesus, and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, I don't want to overwhelm the sound system here, but I imagine that that came out louder and stronger from Paul's voice. I imagine him maybe a little red in the face, maybe pointing at him, or maybe he's just standing there knowing that he's got all the authority of God behind him and simply proclaiming it. But those words are fighting words, right? Paul is picking a fight. In verse 9, we've got two very significant things. First, we're introduced to the new name for Saul. Up until this point, he's always called Saul. Now we're told he's also called Paul, and through most of the rest of the book of Acts, just a few exceptions, he will go by Paul. When he writes the letters that make up most of the books of our New Testament, he always refers to himself as Paul, and this is the point that that changes. Now this is not a big, like, 
when Abram becomes Abraham or when Simon becomes Peter, those, those were God speaking, saying, you were this and now you're this. That doesn't happen in this story. We're simply informed that Saul also goes by Paul. What's happening there? Saul is his Hebrew Jewish name. Think of King Saul in the Old Testament. Okay? His mom and dad probably named him Saul because they wanted him to be big and strong and powerful like King Saul was before he lost his mind and went crazy and messed up the kingdom and all that. But early Saul, that's probably what they were hoping for. Paul is a Roman name. We see it in the guy who's in charge right here, Sergius Paulus. What we don't see in our English Bible is, if you, if you read it in Greek, anytime you see the word Paul there, it's not four letters Paul, it's Paulus. It's an O at the end instead of a U like Sergius Paulus, but it's basically the same name. It's a good Roman name. And so Paul, as he realizes his mission is shifting now to the Roman world, starts using his Roman name. Now, there are meanings to those two names, and I find this pretty beautiful too. So Saul means desired, sought after. Every one of us wants to be desired. Every one of us wants to be loved and adored and thought highly of. We want people to be impressed with us. Paul means little. So as he leaves behind his rock star life as persecutor of the church, hero of Judaism as they try to squash Christianity, and he's humbled by Jesus, and he's discipled by Barnabas and the other Christians in Antioch, and he's sent out on mission. He's being transformed from rock star hater of Christ and his church to little Paul, servant of Christ. And the irony there is that he becomes the primary, the most written author in the New Testament. He becomes the church planter all over the Mediterranean region. He turns the world upside down, even though he's named little. That is true of us too. Humility is the path to being used by God. Pride, greatness, or like our last song that we just sang, self-exaltation that we're drawn to does not lead to a life that does great things for God. You may do great things for yourself, but not for God. I notice something else too in verse 9. Whenever we see Saul and Barnabas up until this point, Barnabas is always listed first. This makes sense. He is the elder of Saul. He's the discipler, the trainer of Saul. He's the one that we should assume is in charge of this mission because he's named first. But here, now at this moment, when the confrontation gets started, the son of encouragement slides to the background, and little Paul, who is full of thunder, steps forward to battle with Bar-Jesus, the magician. From this point on, Saul's name will come first. Saul, Paul, is assuming the leadership in this mission. God has chosen him for this very opportunity of reaching the Roman world. 
This is a significant turning point in the book of Acts. It's a significant turning point in the history of the church and even for the world. So full of the Holy Spirit, Paul verbally attacks Bar-Jesus to knock him down to size. The guy whose name means little is used by God to bring down the guy who thinks so highly of himself and to make him smaller. I wonder if Sergius Paulus was shocked by this because these guys walk in, they're guests to the kingdom, and the first thing that they do is they attack the counselor of the, the ruler publicly, boldly. I wonder if maybe Sergius Paulus was kind of tired of this whole magician thing, and he just sat back and kind of smirked and giggled to himself as this little duel took place. Paul's not just about words, though. Verse 11. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He's still talking to Bar-Jesus. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. That doesn't mean from the outside he was covered in mist and darkness. That means through his eyes he could not see anymore. And he went about seeking people to heal him by the hand. So Saul declares this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God strikes this guy blind. Now, he had to have people lead him around by the hand. So the guy who was leading, advising the ruler of Cyprus is now forced to humbly be led around by regular people. But there's a lot more beautiful irony in this. Because it's out of the words of Saul, out of the mouth of Saul that this happens. And do you remember the conversion of Saul? He's proud, he's full of himself, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and Jesus himself shows up and blinds him. And he has to be led around by others. I don't think Saul, Paul, missed that at all. I'm sure that as the Spirit's working through them, through him and he's pronouncing this curse on the magician that inside of him he's thinking, God, you are amazing. The way that you circle this back around is just beautiful and I can't believe I get to be part of this story. Hmm. I love it. So what happens? Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this Roman governor, who is supposed to worship a whole bunch of gods in the Roman pantheon, and is supposed to worship his emperor, who claims to be a god, witnesses this confrontation, hears the words of Paul, becomes a believer in Jesus. I don't know anything about this guy after that. I don't, know if, I don't know if he was discipled, if he grew, if he became you know, a godly leader. I don't have any idea. But just the fact that he wanted to hear from these crazy, traveling, dirty Jewish guys who just walked across the island, that he was eager to hear the truth from him, and that we're told that he responds with belief is astonishing. God must be working in his life beforehand, getting him ready for this. He's eager to hear the gospel, and he responds with faith. We might think, well, that, that's nice, 
for Paul. I'm glad that he's off on a good start. Very dramatic, yay, missionary Paul, but that's not me, and I haven't been gifted in that way. I'm not, I'm not a prophet, and I can't just walk up and, and curse somebody and have them go blind. So how could this possibly be encouraging to us? What does the verse say that Sergius was moved by? It says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now we're not told what, ta- what Paul and Barnabas taught him. But we can assume it was the core message of the gospel because we know that Sergius responds with belief, becomes a follower of Jesus. So Luke, as he's writing this for us, he's leaving out all those details. We're meant to connect those dots afterwards. But he phrases it in such a way to make sure that we know it's not just the words and the teaching of Paul. It's not just the, the power demonstrated by cursing bar Jesus and now he can't see. And it's not just clever teaching or putting the words together just the right way or making a compelling case. Paul is teaching what Luke tells us here is the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the Lord. It's not up to Paul to be clever and compelling. He shares the teaching of the Lord, and it saves this man. Now, I'm going to assume that years later, when God is working through John Mark to write the gospel of Mark, that he's going to have that same kind of, Lord, you're just drawing this full circle. This is amazing. I can't believe I get to be a part of that moment. When he writes in what we'd eventually call Mark chapter 1 about Jesus showing up in Capernaum. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, Jesus entered the synagogue, and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Same words, same phrasing. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. He taught with authority. The scribes were supposed to to teach with authority, to speak on behalf of God. They were the masters of the Old Testament, and they were to quote and teach the Old Testament to the people, but their teaching was hollow, and the people knew it. Jesus shows up, and he teaches with authority that they just can't understand, and they're they're astonished by what he says. And then a decade or so later, Paul shows up, demonstrates his authority, and astonishes Sergius, with the teachings of Jesus. I love it. All right, when did Sergius believe? Verse 12 tells us he believed when he saw what had occurred. But why did he believe? It was because of the teaching of the Lord. If this is true, this is true on both the receiving end and the sending end, the speaking end and the hearing end. You and I are called to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. We don't have to be eloquent, polished, highly practiced presenters. We don't rely on ourselves 
to convince others of their need for Christ and his offer of salvation if they'll repent and believe. We are to communicate the teaching of the Lord. God will work in our proclamation of the teaching of the Lord and in their hearing of the teaching of the Lord. And those whom he has selected, he will draw into new life, as we see with Sergius. The word of God, proclaimed by Paul here, cuts deep into Sergius. Which reminds me of two things that we talked about last week at the end of Ephesians. In chapter 617 of Ephesians, we read, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we see that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, cutting into Sergius in this story. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, we read the same sort of thing. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God gets down inside of you and into the side of the person that you're talking to and does surgery, like a sharp scalpel, cutting, discerning, separating even the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, fun fact, the book of Hebrews does not identify who the author is. Most of the New Testament books, most of them written by Paul, but they start off by saying, you know, I, Paul, write this letter to you, the Thessalonians. We know who wrote it. That's not true the book of Hebrews. Some scholars believe that the most likely author of the book of Hebrews is Barnabas. Now, nobody knows. Well, God knows. Barnabas knows. But wouldn't it be an extra beautiful little circle in our story here if the words of Paul in Ephesians 6 and the words, maybe, of Barnabas in Hebrews 4, that both speak of the Word of God as a sword piercing into the heart, if, as those are written, they're both remembering when the Word of God pierced into Sergius's heart on the island of Cyprus. Maybe. It'd be beautiful if it was really Barnabas. Either way, the words are true. So the other side of the equation is encouraging too. If you are called, you are, to proclaim the gospel, and you think, what, what do I say? I don't know what to say. I don't know where to start. What if I say the wrong things? What if I mess it up? What encouragement does verse 12 give us? It encourages us to share the teachings of the Lord. Not your own teachings. Not what you can make up in your own clever mind but what Jesus has already given us. Verse 12 tells us that the proconsul is astonished. But it doesn't say he's astonished by the power of Paul and the cursing of Bar-Jesus. He says he's astonished at the word of the Lord, the teachings of the Lord. There are billions of people alive today that desperately need the teaching of the Lord. You know some of them. Do you know the teaching of the Lord, and can you share it with them? You have 
in your possession a sword able to cut through to the heart of the matter. In the people that you love, in the people that you haven't even met yet, who need to hear the teachings of the Lord. Will you, will you be a student of the word so that you can be a teacher of the word, not your words, the word, so that it can be used as that scalpel, that two-edged sword to cut to the heart of those who need to hear the gospel, the message of salvation. I know that is an overwhelming and scary thought for many of you. I gave you a resource, two resources in your bulletin. There's two Bible tracts in there. They're the two that I have used most in my ministry here. One is the question, what is the gospel? The other is the story. The story is um, maybe more, more easily presented to younger folks. The, what is the gospel is just a little more straightforward adult kind of presentation. Those two missionary tracks are not trying to present a, a message in a particularly clever and persuasive way. They are trying to be clever and persuasive, but what they're trying to do is present the teachings of the Lord. So if you want to know very specifically, very basically, what the teaching of the Lord is, especially when it comes to salvation, those are two very good tools to start with that you yourself can use to share with others. So that's the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. He will spend the next years of his life on multiple trips, larger circles each time, traveling out into the Mediterranean, sharing the teaching of the Lord. And many thousands of lives will be brought to Christ because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving Saul, who was so determined to harm you, to harm your name, to harm your people, and yet you chose him, you selected him, you saved him. Just amazing, Lord. And it's just amazing that you've saved any of us in this room. As our hearts were bent on self-exaltation, we're always looking out for ourselves, yet you worked in us and you exposed in us the hunger and the emptiness that eventually drew us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have delivered to us through Paul's hand, through Mark's hands, through Luke's hands, the things that we need to know to be well-versed in the teachings of the Lord. We know that you have sent us on mission. We know, Jesus, you did that very clearly, telling us to go to all nations, make disciples of all people. We know that's our calling. Would you work in us, encourage us, so that we can courageously fulfill that call? Would you sink your word deep into us, that we may be well-versed in the teachings of the Lord, so that we may share the teachings of the Lord with those who need desperately to hear them. In Jesus' name, amen.